Well, hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're continuing Alfred Loomis's The Cruise of the Hippocampus, and we're on Chapter 3. Chapter 3 Headwind and Showers of Rain. One of the most seagoing authors of the present day has written recently of the poetry of the night, the soft swish of the waves of the ship's bow, the occasional dash of spray like nectar on the lips, and of how all these concomitants of a lazy mid-watch put one in tune with the universe. Brandishing aloft this eminent authority story, I asked my valiant crew what they thought of during the graveyard watch, subjoined our two voracious statements. Statement of Joe Squibb, ex-artilleryman. When I have the trick at the observation post and you fellows are sleeping in your funk hole, I wonder what makes the flying fish fly. That starts me to speculating on how a swarm of houseflies can overtake a ship two days or fifteen miles from port. In such cogitation, I feel loath to call my relief even after I have stood the middle and part of the morning watches and have refilled all the lamps and mopped up the floor before getting breakfast. Statement of Joe Chambers, ex-Chaserman. When I have the deck, all the pleasant images of a well-spent life pass in review before my closed eyes. I cork off peacefully while Marblehead, Bensonhurst, Ponta Delgada, Santa Domingo and the malaria ward at the Key West Hospital fight for my comatose attention. But when the stormy petrels start twittering around the log line, I snap out of it, put on my oilers, lash the barometer to keep it from falling any lower, and prepare for a wicked night. In all the years that I have been in my service, I have never yet stood a lazy mid-watch. Well, as for me, I marvel not at the immensity of the universe and all the little stars buzzing dizzily across the firmament, but dally my thought with the slothfulness of time. At 12.05, I look at my wrist chronometer and find that I have two hours and 55 minutes to stand before calling Joe to tell him that it is raining violently and blowing a gale from the northeast. At 12.10, I find that I still have two hours and 50 minutes to go, and so on. And my subconscious mind continually asks me why I elected to do this sort of thing in preference to sleeping comfortably at home in a bed. So the watch proceeds. But the mention of the stormy petrels in Chambers' statement has reminded him of a story which must be repeated here before the answer to my subconscious questioning is woven into the log of the hippocampus. Al is an imaginative raconteur, and if ever we lie becalmed for a month, one chapter at least of Hippo's Cruise will be devoted to his probable stories. The one about the stormy petrels takes us back to the bold, bad days of the 11th squadron of sub-chasers, which saved New York from the German submarines. He had just been commissioned and assigned to command SC-63. As he stepped aboard, preparatory to accompanying a 14-knot convoy to sea, his eye fell on the wilted, weazened form of a warrant boatswain who had spent the last 40 years of his naval life on shore station. The warrant piped up in a quavering tremble. I've been ordered to accompany you on this convoy to make you seagoing. You will remain in command, but I will stand by to give you the benefit of my experience. You may shove off. And so they shoved. Before long, the chaser had cleared Ambrose and was out on the billowing Atlantic. 
and before long the warrant was in the possession of the skipper's bunk, much troubled in mind and stomach. Throughout a long and stormy night, the chaser stuck with the convoy, and Chambers kept the deck, and in the morning reversed his course and stood back to New York. Then he went below and awakened the warrant from a fitful slumber. With palsied hands, that experienced sea dog raised his face to a port light, looked through it at the tumbling waste of waters and cried in a piteous falsetto, My God, we're at sea, we're at sea! Then, catching sight of a covey of stormy petrels, he turned his woe-begone face to chambers and added, And them birds ain't following us to no good purpose. And so it has been with Mother Carey's chickens since the outset of the Hippocampus's expedition. They followed us to no good purpose, and they have brought enough foul weather to establish the name and fame of any young Joe Conrad whose astral form happens to hover over us. We can promise him more of the same, with an occasional calm thrown in to vary the monotony. Before leaving Norfolk on May 12th, I interviewed the Weather Bureau, my first and only crime of that nature, and learned that an ominous low was developing over the Middle West and that fresh to strong southeast winds might be expected for several days. So I returned aboard and put the matter up to the crew. We might go inside Hatteras, burn a lot of gas, travel only by day and go aground in the Pamlico Sound, or we might run outside and take what the Weather Bureau thought it had promised us. Hence we chose the lesser of two evils, and that afternoon dropped down to Lynnhaven Roads, there to anchor in quiet water in the lee of Cape Henry. We figured that if the wind did blow from the southeast, we would have a snug berth, and if it blew from another quarter, we could up anchor and away. Friday, the 13th, dawned fair, with just a suggestion of a southeast slant, and after stowing a breakfast where it would do the most good, we stood out between the Virginia Capes, dipping our colours to an overtaking tea boat. Our first tack carried us past the sea buoy, ten miles to eastward, and put two fishing schooners behind us, and the next reached us down the coast a matter of five miles and within two miles of the beach before we again put about and headed for open sea. So, fighting a contrary slant of wind, we spent the day and by nightfall had picked up Karituk Light and made good less than twenty miles. With a change of watch, shortly after midnight came a squall of wind and the only excitement of the run to Beaufort. In lowering the mainsail to meet the squall, the mast hoops, which had become elongated through much use, stuck, and we consumed exactly as many moments in stays as we were needed to carry the foot of the jib away and the boom lacing. It then became my pleasant diversion to divest myself of oilers, peacoat and other essentials of a cruise in the tropics and lay myself along the bowsprit. Thanks to the jib downhaul which Al had rigged two days before, the torn jib came down easily and it was a matter of only half an hour working by the sense of touch to unbend the old sail and bend on our storm jib. Inasmuch as the sea water was warmer than the air, I have taken worse dunkings than the little hippo gave me as her sky-jabbing bowsprit reversed the motion and immersed itself and me. Under her shortened suit of sails, the hippocampus proved unwilling to come about when, with the storm jib filling, we tested it out. But we thanked whatever prudence we possessed that had put us fifteen miles from the lee shore before the squall struck and being then on the port tack, headed back to Virginia. Paul, on the three-by-six watch, reported violent showers of rain with little wind, and at six o'clock it was unanimously voted to start the motor and ease the motion of the craft. 
The Palmer voted aye along with the rest of us, kicking off merrily after a spasm or two. But the go-ahead position of the reverse registered a no, and it was eight o'clock before we had achieved an adjustment that would not slip when the propeller, after a short run-up on the back of a wave for a breath of air, returned to deep water. An hour later, we sighted Currituck on our beam and learned that 12 hours of tossing about had netted us less than five miles of southing. Finding that the jib and jigger remained filled with the motor working, we raised the mainsail, but it wasn't many minutes before the southeast wind gave the lie to the weather bureau and puffed out, never to revive sufficiently to give us steerage way until we had rounded Hatteras and Lookout and were finally anchored securely off the entrance to Beaufort Harbour, North Carolina. All day of Saturday the 14th we plugged along under power, being convoyed by a school of 75 to 100 porpoises, and at nightfall when we picked up Wimble Shoals boy, the sea was calm and Hatteras had lost its power to alarm us. That night we recorded in the log the most vivid display of northern lights that we had ever seen and concluded that old man Hatteras, being temporarily out of breath, was doing what he could to make our passage interesting. Yet, we mentally noted that sentence in the Coast Pilot which relates that two or three wrecks may usually be seen on the outer shoals. Paul, standing his usual rainy watch, brought Diamond Shoals light vessel abeam just before daylight, and we squared away for Cape Lookout. The Sabbath was an uneventful repetition of Saturday, except that in mid-afternoon, desiring to test the action of the boat under jib and jigger alone, we declutched and spent the next two hours in the bilge, gazing blasphemously into the innards of the reversing gear. Eventually, it took hold again in the go-ahead, and in justice to it, it has never given us trouble since, but the time lost reduced to nothing our margin of daylight, which we had hoped would take us through the inner channel of Cape Lookout Shoals. So with darkness and the customary heavy rain, we shaped a course for the southern tip of the shoals and prepared for another night of it. By this time, the apple pies of Mrs. Frederick Lewis of Norfolk, a stranger on our arrival there but a most hospitable hostess before our departure, had gone the way of all transcendently delicious pastry, and we were anxious to make port and surround a chow cooked under favourable circumstances. But old man Hatteras, to whom we had thumbed an impudent nose, hadn't finished with us. He sent dizzy showers of rain which obscured Cape Lookout light and sent us on a long detour around the shoals for safety's sake. And at 12.30 of the morning of May 16th, as we picked up the lighted boy at Beaufort entrance, he drained the last drop of gasoline from our starboard tank and brought us up short. Knowing that there was less than a gallon left in the port tank, we nonchalantly let go the hook in eight fathoms of water, extinguished running lights, and lighted the rider, and turned in for some much-needed shut-eye. Lest we be criticised for anchoring in the open ocean, let me explain that it is my first offence, and that the action was justified. The sea was flat and calm, with not enough air to flutter the match which lit the riding light. Before turning in, we spliced the main brace, drinking to a favourable slant of wind with the coming of daylight, and Squib, who had had the watch below from eight o'clock on, slept with one ear open. At 5.30, he awakened us with the pleasing news that a breath of air was stirring from the southeast, and, getting underway with all sail set, we made for Beaufort Inlet. Following the boys, but with the sounding lead in play and with Al's cunning hand on the tiller, 
we passed between the breakers and thanked the little god of gasolindom that our starboard tank had drained when it did, and not three miles later in our voyage into turbulent waters. Then, bucking an ebb tide and screening the chart from the matutinal downpour of rain, we rounded the bell and stood up the harbour. But the wind, wearied of its well-doing, left us, and when, less than a mile from the wharves, we started the motor on what was left in the port tank, it carried us to within 400 yards of the gasoline dock, and there the last drop followed the preceding 60 gallons out of the exhaust pipe, and we came to anchor. Undismayed, we squeezed another carbretterful from the starboard tank, emptied the priming can, and were experimenting with kerosene and rainwater when a kindly gentleman towed us to the wharf for value received. Having tanked up, we dropped around a point to another wharf where we secured for a feed and a rest. Let us here leave the hippo for a moment, her hatches battened against an all-day shower of rain, and get a more intimate slant at her personnel and organisation. As previously implied, we have Al Chambers, sailing master and narrator extraordinaire, and Paul Squibb, who, since his initiation in the famous Battle of Fenwick Lightship, has developed into the most ocean-going gadget that ever trod a deck. He found it inexpedient to say Al Chambers or Al Loomis when calling the respective hands to chow, and so calls us both Joe. Naturally enough, we call him Joe, and there is now a complete unanimity of nomenclature aboard the yawl. Mistakes are impossible, and profanity is useless. Underway, Chambers usually has the first watch from port while the skipper lies below and gets used to the motion of the craft, and Squib wrestles with a meal. After that, the dishes wash themselves in the rain, and the skipper takes a trick at the stick while the crew cork in anticipation of a stormy night at sea. Once darkness has fallen out of a villainous sunset, the watches come with some regularity, and we have found that three hours on deck is about all that a man can encompass with ease. The day after leaving port, when the seas are running high, two meals are thought sufficient to keep soul and body together, but with the mid-afternoon calm, our spirits revive and there is a surprising amount of rifle fire at tethered targets and diving off the bowsprit to pick up a line trailing astern and give the sharks a run for their money, harpooning porpoises with a blunt boat hook and working Mark St. Hilaire sights with a blunt cerebrum are other sports until the conventional thunderstorm of eventide comes along and we start looking for a lightship that is supposed to be somewhere along our course. Although we always steer courses from lightship to lightship, it has chanced that since leaving Scotland lightship at the entrance to New York Harbour, we have never sighted one by day. Always their cheery lamps wink at us between the hours of 8pm and 4am. Night follows day and day succeeds night with the allotted amount of rain and adverse wind and eventually we reach port where, after drying sails, bunting and bedding, we make merry with the inhabitants. It's a gay life if you happen to like it, as we all do. But at Beaufort, there is a little jollity among the natives, and we employed our second day there, rigging a makeshift boom from our spare jib, and renewing the hoops of the mainmast. Readers who had the temerity to glance over the first chapter of this yarn will remember that the possibility of having to renew the hoops by unstepping the mast caused me no little worriment. Imagine my surprise and delight to find that this was unnecessary, 
and that wooden hoops when placed in the chowder kettle become flexible and may easily be warped around the mast and their ends riveted together. I should warn other novices, however, not to cook chowder and steam hoops at the same time. There was a severe northerly blowing in Beaufort the second day of our stop there, the colours of the marine biological laboratory flying straight out in the wind, and on the advice of a local prophet, we delayed our departure long enough to bust into a worse northeaster. On Wednesday, May the 18th, we got underway bright and early, after having emptied the cylinders of a quantity of salt water that had backed up from the muffler, and at 10.30 cleared the entrance buoy, shut off the motor, and set all sail for a run to Frying Pan Shoals light vessel off Cape Fear. The wind was fair, our first extended experience in sailing free, and by 7pm we had logged 50 miles. In mid-afternoon, a falling barometer and a freshening breeze indicated that we would probably have a night of it, but as long as daylight lasted, we kept all sails set and for a time logged 8 nautical miles an hour. At first we ran with the mainsail and the mizzen wing and wing, the jib not filling on this point of sailing, but with the following sea picking up, the mizzen showed an increasing propensity for jibing, and on a southwesterly by south course, with a northeast wind, we made it an out-and-out starboard tack and did better. At 7pm, the wind strengthening, we prepared to shorten sail, and at this moment a larger wave than its fellows spilled the air from the mainsail, and its running mate heaved the boom. Thus, it jibed while ten feet above our heads and luckily caught in the belly of the sail on a short-lived port tack. Chambers headed her into it immediately and doused the mainsail, the new hoops working perfectly, thereupon to find that we could not carry our new jib with its cumbersome jury boom, so we had to resort again to the storm jib. With this bandana handkerchief set, it was a question of sailing a course that the ship would steer, and this proved to be a south-southwest which, luckily enough, would carry us past the lighted buoy on the outer extremity of Frying Pan Shoals, about 28 miles from Cape Fear. Being then prepared for heavy weather, we asked Barrios to let her flicker, and he did, giving us in 24 hours our best day's run of 140 miles. Meanwhile, the wind continued to increase in force, and at 2.40am, when my eyes were gladdened by the sight of the lighted buoy abeam, we were logging seven knots under storm jib and jigger alone. In shoal water, this night would have ranked with our most hair-raising experience of the Delaware Capes, but with 15 or 20 fathoms beneath her, the hippocampus rode the seas with the buoyancy of a tin duck in a bathtub. Yet, it was not a night for tempting the fates, and as we could only lay a course for Charleston light vessel by jibing the mizzen, I let her continue on her south-southwest course, when at daylight I was relieved and took my watch below. Late in the morning watch, the wind moderated and Chambers and Squib jibed her over to the starboard tack on a course which, if continued, would have carried us to the light ship. The wind spent the morning marshalling up a flock of wicked-looking nimbus clouds and employed itself during the early part of the afternoon, parading them across the heavens from north to south and from south to north, and emptying them upon us with each passing. It seemed as if Cape Hatteras, Lookout and Fear were determined to push us for passing them so easily, and the stormy petrels had a particularly sinister aspect as they picked imaginary crumbs from the water and sported with the waves. Yet, at 3pm in the middle of the most breathtaking downpour of the day, the wind died completely, and for two hours while the sun battled with the clouds for supremacy, 
we slatted in a dead calm, the mizzen boom playing its anvil chorus until our nerves cried for peace and quiet. Then, a slant of wind of equal strength hit us from the southeast and for two hours more bowled us along our westerly way. The Gulf Stream had set us during the day and at midnight we were not greatly surprised when on a dying breeze we sighted Cape Romaine at some distance on our starboard bow. Again, the wind breathed out, and for the following twelve hours we made nothing but leeway and showed a hypothetical gain on the patent log of five and a half miles. It then became time to start the motor to reach Charleston before dark, and I made my first heinous navigational error. I mention it as a warning to others because, although no one else has ever done it, it might easily be repeated by the careless. I applied a point of deviation the wrong way. Consequently, when we had overrun our distance from Cape Romaine to Charleston Light Vessel, there was no vessel, nor any land in sight, and we bore up to westward looking for landmarks. Presently, the keen eyes of the exec sighted Charleston Lighthouse, a matchstick standing upright on the horizon, and we laid a north-westerly course for it, having erred in our landfall by a matter of ten miles. Naturally enough, I was deeply chagrined and promised the crew to set up the first round when we come to the countries where the setting is good. Thus, mutiny was prevented and we squared away for the jetties with easy consciences. Upon Charleston, we turn our backward glances with particularly tender memories. Arriving at the Carolina Yacht Club in the moonlight, we were assigned a berth alongside the dock and by no less than a dozen members were cordially extended the hospitality of the club, which included hot showers, shore food, and all kinds of elbow room for writing letters. At Charleston, too, we learned that the Hague twins still fly their five-starred flag in the face of the enemy, and we took them into camp and were glad. The first day in port was devoted to drying everything which had become wet, which was everything aboard ship, and on the following day we painted the deck house and varnished the hatches. But that afternoon we accepted the hospitality of Charles C. West, a member of the club, and with his two friends, Middleton and Dexter, took the road to Folly Beach with alarming alacrity. On the hard sand of the beach, avoiding the waves of an oncoming tide, we watched the laggard hand of the speedometer working up to 45 miles per hour and knew that it undertold the truth by 20 miles. Then we swam, returned to the club for food, and called it a banner day. The next was somewhat like it, being a judicious mixture of work and play, and including acceptance of the kind invitation of Squibb's friend, Lieutenant Berwick Lanier, to lunch with him aboard his new destroyer, USS Biddle. There, on a tour of inspection, Chambers was amazed to see on the Fantel the identical depth charge projector or Y-gun which had equipped his sub-chaser, number 63, during the war. With great restraint, no one remarked on the smallness of the world. In the evening, we made poor shift to return the hospitality of Mr. West, and on the evening following, Lieutenant Lanier paid us the honour of sharing our vesperal corn fritters. Over the cigarettes, there was much anecdote of the Navy in general, and of the esteemed Captain Juggy Nelson in particular. He it was who won the war for the Allies with the Adriatic detachment of sub-chasers, and we regretted keenly the orders which had dispatched him and the USS Leonidas with all speed possible to New York ten days before our arrival in Charleston. 
The next day, May 25th, having finished our ship's work, we lashed everything down and headed to sea, laden with much booty from the post and express offices. We have not yet caught up with an eight-foot dinghy which the Skinny Atlas people have expressed to Jacksonville with their compliments, intending thereby to assuage our grief at losing our own wary dinghy in the storm of May 3rd. When we do, we shall shun line-breaking, paint-marring docks and anchor at will. Then our happiness will be complete. Well, that's the end of today's chapter. We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.